Well, good morning, everybody. It is Sunday for you. It is Saturday for me right now. But I wanted to give you some announcements first. Uh, this is kind of a new reality right now, obviously. Uh, and today we were going to try to do this via video and also um, an audio version as well on the website for our sermon this week. But first, uh, some announcements. A couple different things. Um, just remember uh, to follow us on social media. So make sure to like our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just search Redwood Christian Fellowship on both and that should come up for you. Um, also, be sure to bookmark our website, www.rcf. Fortuna.org. We have resources there about the church and also links to sermons, which of course can be accessed via iTunes and also sermon.net. And so uh, that's how we're going to be preaching and communicating to you during this time of shelter in place. We also want to encourage you to Give um, those of you who belong to Redwood Christian Fellowship who call this your home church. Um, please continue to give as you are able. Uh, the instructions are on the website. Uh, the best process for that. There's a big uh, giving tab at the top of the website that you can click, which will tell you where to mail the checks to and such. Um, so again, make use of these different ways um, during this time, uh, these digital means uh, to be able to connect with you. And of course, we will be making announcements uh, via the website and via Facebook and YouTube and such um, when we can get back together after all this is over. So again, those are the announcements for today. Let's go ahead and pray this morning um, before we get started. God, I do just ask for your blessing on this time. I just admit to you it's a little awkward to do this, but God, I thank you for technology that you've given us, and I just ask that you would bless it. Bless me here now as I speak your word. Bless those that are watching or listening. Their ears and their hearts that they might receive it. God, speak to us in this time. Draw near. Open your word. May we fear you. May we delight in fearing you. Our God, in Jesus' name, amen. So our scripture passage is the end of Ecclesiastes, what we began the year with, this book, and here we are at the end. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'm going to start at verse 8 to verse 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. 
Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the title today is Fearing God and Fearing Not in a Time of COVID-19. Fearing God and Fearing Not in a Time of COVID-19. At the time of uh, this video anyway, um, when you look at the stats for COVID, we see that there's over a million infected 60,877 deaths, with that number rising. And of course, recoveries as well. Doesn't always get reported as much, but 233,000 recoveries. And we don't know what that number is going to be. We don't know how it's going to affect us more as a community in the times to come. But we do know that many of those numbers are continuing to rise, and that our nation, um, the United States of America, actually leads right now in the world for these infections. So this is a sobering time. It is a time of soberness, and here we are in the book of Ecclesiastes being sobered by the reality of death and how God calls us um, to approach that. And it's a good reminder for us just to reflect on the Bible as a whole, that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world. That we live in a world of vanity, a world of hevel, which is the Hebrew word for this word that's translated vanity. And when we just kind of go back um, to other sermons and just thinking about the, the reality of what this word means, one commentator basically points out five different meanings for it of what life and this world looks like for the book of Ecclesiastes and then for the fall of Genesis 3, what life under the sun is. And he describes it with this word, Havel which can mean vanity, can mean triteness, meaninglessness. It can mean brief, that life is brief. Life is uncontrollable. That life is futile, frustrating. That we are subject to limitations, that as human beings, we have so many limitations. 
and that life is absurd at times. It seems absurd. It seems meaningless, that it's contradictory. Things going well, things not going well. Job working out great, job not working out great. Maybe a loss of a job. Home life good, home life not so good. Justice takes place, justice does not take place. Injustices everywhere. And so this world of contradiction. And so in verse 8, we're just reminded, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. That's all that the preacher sees. So that's what Ecclesiastes has shown us. But one thing that's interesting in the book of Ecclesiastes is as you look at this book, it appears that there is some kind of narrator. There's this use of the first person most often throughout the book, and then there is the use of the third person. And some scholars define this as a frame narrator, to use the technical term, that basically chapters 1 verses 1 to 11 is this narrator that's speaking, and then here from verse 8 through the end of the chapter, you have this narrator talking. But everything in between is in first person, and then in the front end and on the back end, you have this narrator. And as you look at the scholars, I mean, they get into all kinds of stuff, okay? There's one author, there's two authors, there's three authors. Who is the author? Um, maybe there's the one person talking, and then there's like an alter ego that jumps in and talks. Um, some say, well, this was mainly the first person is somebody talking, Solomon or whoever, and then somebody comes on the front end and the back end to correct everything that has been said. Uh, and, and that's not um, the view that I'm going with. But there does seem to be just a different way of speaking here. And whether, whether this is Solomon himself or whether this is someone else, ultimately, it really doesn't matter. Um, we know that the Holy Spirit has breathed this for us and that there is, amidst all of the contradictions in Ecclesiastes that, of course, show us what the world and life can be like, that in the midst of this, there is this whole unified vision given. Um, and that's really what he culminates with in this chapter. But we see that because of the way that he talks of some kind of narrator going on here. Besides being wise, the preacher, so again speaking, this preacher, this one who's just been talking for most of the book of Ecclesiastes, that this preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And so what we see in verse 9 is basically that this preacher taught knowledge, weighed, evaluated, studied, words like searched out, just looking for meaning in this life, and then arranged many proverbs with great care. And the idea there of arranging is this idea of editing, 
and that the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And so we have the fact that this preacher is an artist and a truth teller. Artist, the idea there, this words of delight. Some translations have this idea of it, of aesthetically pleasing. And truth telling. That in this assembling and editing, this preacher has found words of Delight, and you kind of go, wait a second here, Ecclesiastes hasn't been that delightful. Oh, but there's a lot of joy in there too. There's a lot of joy in there too. But this artistic reality combined with this truth telling. And man, just what a, what a, what an interesting way to do life and just how God has created us as human beings of this simultaneousness of, of man, the say it like it is piece and then the assembling of art and, and care. And in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So these words that are assembled, these words of wisdom are like goads, sharp metal tools to prod and train animals. Man, what a picture of what Ecclesiastes has been telling us that all of these words that have been assembled are like a sharp metal tool to train an animal and are like nails fixed. This could be the nails at the end of a prodding tool that are fastened to this tool securely and then are just poking the animal. So what's the picture here? <laughs> that... These words of wisdom are going to sting. They might even bring pain. They're hard words. But this idea of training and discipline, that training, just like athletic training, training at the gym, going for walks, going for runs, the training can bring pain, but ultimately it's going to make you stronger. It's going to make you more stable. It's going to make you more secure. So the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings. So all of these things for us are going to poke at us or at times going to kind of bring pain. Wake up. This is reality. And they're also going to be, wow, what a strength, what a stability that it is for us. If we take this vision of what life is and who our God is in this life. And that they are given by one shepherd. God is called a shepherd in Psalm 81, the shepherd of Israel. And there's an amazing typology here, likely. The other times that this particular phrase, one shepherd is used in the Bible, is in Ezekiel. So you have this time in Ecclesiastes and then in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37. I'm just going to look at one of them. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 
verse 23 to 24. And I will set up, this is God speaking, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, I have spoken. So here we have a prophecy, and this is very similar to the other passage where it's mentioned in Ezekiel 37, this prophecy of this messianic Davidic king that's going to be the shepherd of his people. I will set up. God's going to send a shepherd. And so here we have this little hint in Ecclesiastes of what's to come. That one shepherd is giving these words. One Davidic king. You may say, well, sure, it's you know probably Solomon's son. Or excuse me, David's, David's son, Solomon. Well, there can be a hint of that. But ultimately... It's this picture of the, no, 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 there's going to be another Davidic king that actually comes. It's going to be greater than David, greater than Solomon, and it is the person of Jesus Christ, who, of course, is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus, the one who lays his life down for the sheep, for his people, that comes to dwell among his people in the grimness and griminess of life that Jesus comes And so here we have this truth that all these words of the wise are given by one shepherd. There's a voice behind this voice. There's a voice behind the preacher's voice, and it's the voice of Jesus. My son, beware of anything beyond these, this is verse 12, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So my son, this classic phrase in wisdom literature, we saw that a lot in Proverbs, the father and a son teaching, my son, one who is listening, hearing this, beware of stuff that goes beyond this. Here you have this this, uh, man who's been searching to find meaning in life, writing all this stuff down, crafting it in a poetic way, saying beware of going beyond this. All this study, all this searching, beware of stretching beyond your limitations. It can bring weariness. It can bring exhaustion. You keep trying to find meaning. You keep trying to find this stuff in all these different things. There's another book for this. Again, just in our world, all the, all the self-care stuff, all the knowledge and data and information that just streams after us all of, all of the time. He's saying, son, watch out. Watch out for that stuff. Watch out for all that extra things that go beyond what this is telling you, that's trying to have another answer aside from the answer that the preacher, that the shepherd is giving us. Be careful. This is sufficient. This is a sufficient word for life. This is the way in which to live everyday life. This book of Ecclesiastes. So we have this great picture of sufficiency and exhaustion that can come. Of just continuing to search and look for knowledge and I I can't find it. You reach the end of yourself. I've been looking everywhere. I can't find it. You reach the end. And that's just another reminder that that's the point. Get to the end of yourself. God will come and he will make you into a new self. God will send his shepherd for you to be with you in this world. So that's verse 12. Verse 13. 
the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here we have it, the end of the matter. Ecclesiastes gets to the point. Everything has been heard. Beware of anything beyond this. We've said it all. Here's the point. Here's the end, the goal. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this is where we're going to continue to look at this book of Ecclesiastes, what he has to say, and then try to look at the whole theme of what Scripture is saying about the fear of God for us. So what I want to do first is go to the just some different spots in the Old Testament of this theme of the fear of God. The fear of God is all through the Bible. The whole thing, from old to new, you have the fear of God. It's a posture of our relationship with God that is described in both Testaments. The fear of God in the Old Testament, one of the main things, and again, I, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm just gonna try to put some things out there to go, well, what does this mean? What does this actually mean for us to fear God? Well, in the Old Testament, you have Psalm 36 and Psalm 14, which acknowledges the creator and the creature distinction. And there's this idea of the lack of the fear of the Lord. Lack of acknowledging that there is a creator and that I am a creature. Lack of that is foolishness, the psalmist says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I believe that's in Psalm 14. And of course, from the beginning of the biblical story, the whole point is God exists. He made everything. He made you. He made you in his image. That is the basic, fundamental reality of existence. That's the vision of the scriptures. And so, the fear of God looks like that. Looks like acknowledging you are the creator. I am the creature. I am utterly dependent. You are completely and totally independent. All my sufficiency is in you. What else does the fear of God do? The fear of God in the Old Testament. What else do we see about it? What does it look like in life? Leviticus twenty-five seventeen. Always fun when you get to go to Leviticus. Leviticus 25, 17. This is what Leviticus says. You shall not wrong one another. Okay, there's a law. Don't, don't wrong one another. But you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So connecting the idea of doing wrong to neighbor not loving neighbor in fear of God. So the fear of God motivates a love of neighbor. I'm not going to wrong you, one, because you're a human being, you were created in the image of God. 
Um, that's who you are. You are a beautiful creature made in his image. And I'm not going to wrong you because I fear God. There is a God above you who made you. And so the fear of God motivates love of neighbor. The fear of God motivates turning from sin. The fear of God motivates turning from sin. Proverbs 16, 16. Another example of when I believe I wrote down the wrong verse. Yes, I did. Hmm. Well, I can guarantee you that in Proverbs it talks about how the fear of the Lord is turning away from sin. Google it and you will find it. The fear of God also motivates an emotional response of hating what God hates, of hating what God hates. We find that in Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. The fear of the Lord is a hatred of evil. So it's not simply just, oh, I turn away because I got to just do what God told me to do. That actually the fear of the Lord is also an emotional response of God hates it. I, I hate what he hates. I hate it. Man, what a challenge to our culture that at times wants to embrace the things that God hates. And God asks us, do you fear me? Do you love what I love? Do you hate what I hate? We're not going to turn from things that are evil if we don't hate it, if we don't dislike it. And so fear of the Lord motivates an emotional response of hating what God hates. The fear of the Lord is actionable. It is a way of being, not just a way of thinking. It's a way of being, not just a way of thinking. So it's not just a theoretical, intellectual, oh yeah, I believe God exists, he's out there, yay, I'm a theist. <laughs> Big deal. The fear of God is actionable. It's a way of being. The way that Deuteronomy talks about it in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13, kind of a foundational verse for the fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? There we go. Israel, people of God, what does God require of you? Fear God. To walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. So all your heart, all your soul, it's a way of being. It's a way of being of, of, of love to God, of serving God, of following what he says. And so the fear of God, all of those things into one. That's kind of a vision of what the Old Testament teaches us. And so here in Ecclesiastes, he tells us the end, that's it. It's our relationship with God in this atmosphere, in this um, relationship of fear. But what does Ecclesiastes itself say? Well, the fear of God is mentioned, aside from this particular verse, the fear of God is mentioned in three different verses. 
In chapter 314, in chapter 314, we have the fear of God mentioned. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So the preacher tells us, God is sovereign, you're not. That's what happens when we fear God. We recognize that, hey, what God is doing in this world, what God is doing on this earth will endure forever. We can't add from it. We can't take from it. And what God is doing, he's the one in control. We're not. And so we need to remember that, that God is sovereign. The fear of God recognizes his sovereignty. I'm not, and that's okay. I'm not sovereign. So take a deep breath. You're not in control. Take a deep breath. Fear the Lord. We also have um, verses, uh, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So in this passage at the beginning of, of, of um, chapter 5 there, it kind of ends with the reality of fearing God. And what's going on in the context there is basically showing us that the fear of the Lord is announcing to us that God is unimpressed by religious rituals and promises. That God wants less talking He wants more acting, more just everyday, normal obedience. Not a whole lot of ritualistic, religious behavior. God's not just interested in your hasty words, all the promises that you make at the altar or whatever on Sunday morning. About just your big dreams and your big visions and all you're going to do for God and all that you say and all that you want to accomplish. God is uninterested in false religion. God is unimpressed with it. And so it's just seriously coming to awe before him and saying, you know what? Sometimes the big things I'm going to do for God, the big talk, the big promises, God doesn't want that. I just need to sit and realize, you know what he wants? He wants a posture of a mouth that's not just running off, making big promises, doing great religious things, but just a posture as Ecclesiastes is has shown us of everyday obedience, just living normal everyday life in the presence of God, obeying him. So that's something that the fear of God produces. Ecclesiastes 8, 12 to 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So, what's the saying? The context around this is saying, 
God is judge, you're not judge. God is judge, you're not judge. There's a lot of um, um, things going on in the context about that the heart of the children of man is set on doing evil. And we need to realize that ultimately it will be well for God fears. And when you look at the context of chapter eight, you kind of see, yeah, sometimes injustice will happen. Sometimes it seems like the wicked get away with it. But ultimately, it will be well for God fears and not well for those unbelievers. And I think it's also just a reminder that the fear of God reminds us that we can't fix the world. You're not going to be able to fix everything. You just want to maybe get in and try to fix it and solve it and make sure justice is done. Of course, we're to act justly and to see that justice is enforced. But sometimes the world, sometimes the church, sometimes life doesn't work that way. But God will fix it. It will be well. Again, we can rest in that. So those are just some of the, um, some of the context of them, the fear of God in this book and what he's calling us to. Fear of God, you're judge, I'm not. Fear of God, you're sovereign, you rule, you're the governor of this earth and all that is in it. And that you're unimpressed with just human religiosity. You're desiring a everyday, real relationship with you of living in the presence of God. So, when we come to the end of this book, that's what he's saying. Fear God in that way and keep his commandments. Fear God and do what he says. For this is the whole duty of man. And this is fascinating. This is the whole duty of man. Interestingly, the word duty isn't even there. The phrase that is used here, and I don't know Hebrew, but from what I'm reading, something like kol ha-adam, which means all the man. So literally, fear God and keep his commandments for this is all the man. This is the whole of humanity. This is the way of being human. To be a human being in the image of God, this is the point. You want to live a life that's fully human. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's what it means. It's what life is about. And so that phrase... That Hebrew phrase is actually used three other times in Ecclesiastes. I think that's just a great clue for us as we look at this as to what it means to be fully human, what this writer is trying to get us to believe about ourselves and about our God. It's used three other times in what some people call the seize the day passages. The same Hebrew phrase is used in 3.13, 5.19, and 7.2. And so to be fully human is to fear God and follow what he says. And these are three things that he is saying to us. 
some of them may be surprising. 3.13. Start at verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And there's the words, the whole of humanity, all the man. This is it. Gift of pleasure, eating and drinking. You want to live a fully human life? Do this. Eat and drink and take pleasure in your toil, in your work, in your life. Enjoy your eating. Enjoy your drinking. Take pleasure in it. Enjoy pleasure. Be a human being. So that's one of the commands of God. In 519, 519. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So, What's he saying? Rejoice in your toil. God has given you wealth. He's given you possessions. Accept it. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in what you have right now. Not just what you want to have in the future or anything like that. God has given you what you have, the possessions that you have. Enjoy them. It's the gift of God. It is the whole of humanity. And 7-2, Before we hit that, I thought this was fascinating. One of the commentators put it this way and kind of reflecting on these verses. Enjoyment is a divine imperative for which one is accountable. You will be accountable for your enjoyment. And I think the fundamentalist of us wants to say, oh, okay, well, we better be careful not to enjoy too much then. No, no, this is saying you better enjoy. God's command for you is to enjoy what he's given you. So enjoy it. You're going to be accountable for it. For the joy in your life. 7-2. This one's a little more sober. Typical of Ecclesiastes. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. This is the whole of humanity. This is all of the man. Reflect on your death. You're going to die. I am going to die. In a time of COVID-19, It's a reality check. In a time of going through the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a reality check. To be human, to be fully human is to reflect on death. To be fully human is to know that you're going to die. That's a part of being human. And so death is coming. Death is coming. And because death is coming, verse 14 follows. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that's how he ends it. Why fear God? Because God is judge. Judgment is coming. We don't just live in a materialistic universe of just evolution, just going on and on and on and on with no terminus, with no terminating point. We have a vision of God the maker, life, fall, the fall of the world, judgment of God, God coming in the person of Jesus Christ as a rescuer to rise, to, to die, to rise, to make a new heavens and a new earth, judgment at the end, restoration of all things. That's the biblical vision. There's a judgment coming. Every secret thing, God can see the whole of us, all of it, nothing hidden. And so why judgment is coming? Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, I think we transition here for a moment because we've got to have a full picture. And I think a question that arises is, well, what about, hold on a second there, BJ. Fear of God in the New Testament. Okay, this is, this is Old Testament stuff. Well, actually, it's not. Fear of God is a part of our relationship with God all of the way through. This is to be one of the chief characteristics of what it means to be in relationship with God, to hold this fear. It's clear in the New Testament. Why? Jesus tells us to fear God. Okay? Jesus says so. In Matthew 10, 28, Fear the one who could kill both soul and body in hell. Jesus tells us that. Peter, his apostle, later on, after death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, Jesus tells, or excuse me, Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 2, 17, where he just says it in a sentence, fear God. It's like honor the emperor, love the brotherhood, fear God. I forget the order exactly, just these concise statements. He's telling his people, fear the Lord. 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, where he talks about holiness being brought to completion in the fear of God. The fear of God, something about the fear of God to bring holiness in your life to completion. And interestingly, in that verse, he also links the promises of God, not just the commands of God, as well, oh, I better just do what he says. But no, the, the great promises that God has given, the means by which we bring holiness to completion and the reality of living in the fear of God. The early church, man, this was, just love the way this is, this is phrased. Just, just the ways in which the Bible brings everything together. Just listen to this attitude of the, of the, of the early church and ask yourself, is my church like that? Are we like that at Rebbe Christian Fellowship? Am I like that as a person? Acts 9.31. feels like it takes me so long to find these spots in the Bible. I don't know if you're, if you're feeling that, but I am. Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
Man, what a picture of the church, of people that are walking in God's fear and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I love that. The one doesn't cancel out the other. It's not like, well, um, is our movement, is our church thing, is my life as a Christian? No, well, it's mainly a fear of God thing. Or, no, it's mainly a comfort in the Holy Spirit thing. He's like, no, actually, it's both and. It's the people of God are to be the people of the fear of the Lord and the great comfort and consolation of the Holy Spirit. Man, may God make us like that, that, that combo. I do want to say one thing to any unbeliever who may be listening, who does not have the comfort of the Holy Spirit, who does not fear God, who has not trusted what God has done in Jesus Christ. You do have the fear of condemnation. In John 3, the wonderful picture of how God loves the world, how God loves you, how God gave Jesus as a free gift to save you and bring you to him. In that, we also have the reality that for the unbelieving, for the one that turns from that, is condemned. After John 3.16 into John 17, where it says that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. In verse 18, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. You're not going to be condemned if you believe in Jesus, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not only believed in the name of the only Son of God. Later on in three, it talks about whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In the book of Revelation, at the very end, and it talks about the book of life. It talks about those who are not written in the book of life. It talks about those who will not go into the city. And one of those is faithless, the immoral, the faithless, that they will be cast into the lake of fire. So you need to be sobered. God commands you to fear him. If you do not fear him, If you do not look to Jesus as your trust, as the hope of your life, you will be and you are condemned. His judgment will fall on you. But the good news is, at the end of Revelation as well, Jesus says, come. The offer is there. Jesus has come into this world to free you from condemnation, to bring you into a relationship with God, to forgive all of your sins, every commandment that you have broken, every way in which you have turned from God, when you trust him, you get placed in the person of Christ and you are forgiven to have free fellowship with God as a son to walk in the fear of God, to walk in the fear of a father and a son. Not in the sphere of, oh, God's going to get me, he's going to punish me. He will send you to hell if you do not trust him. That is what the Bible says. But he came to rescue you. 
He came to rescue you, to bring you into eternal life, to bring you into a relationship with him. He loves you. He gave himself for you. All that he is, he came to free you and to bring you into relationship with him. He came so that the kind of fearing God that we would have would not be what an unbeliever has, would not be what maybe you have right now. You haven't trusted him. But the fear of God that he is bringing is the fear of God, the person of God that says, I have risen for you. I have taken the penalty of punishment. I have taken the penalty of your sin and it is gone. When you trust me, your death is, you die with me. When you trust me, you rise with me. And so you can fear not. You don't have to be afraid. It's amazing. The same one we are called to fear calls us not to be afraid. That we would not have the fear of a slave, but the fear of a son. The fear of a loving relationship with God as Father. And there's just these amazing pictures of throughout the whole Bible again. Fear not. And I forget how many times it's mentioned. I think it's like the biggest command that there is. Do not be afraid. God's heart. Don't be afraid. When Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus said to the women, do not be afraid. When the angel first talked to the women there, they said, do not be afraid. Jesus comes, don't be afraid. When John, when the apostle John sees the resurrected Christ in the book of Revelation 1, 17 to 18, this, this picture of this resurrected Christ falls dead on his face. And Jesus says, fear not. God's word to us in the person of Christ for those that trust him is fear not. You don't have to be afraid of COVID-19. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of disease. You don't have to be afraid for sins you have committed. You don't have to be afraid of anything, nothing. The only thing you fear is me. And I'm telling you, fear not. So one of God's greatest desires for you is not to be afraid. Do you believe this? That's the kind of relationship that he is inviting us into. And we've seen that ever since the beginning. Even in Genesis 3, we have this universal propensity to fear. They sin, they're afraid. They hide themselves. They hide from God's call. This universal fear, this human vulnerability, this shame of nakedness, sin comes. What does God do? He clothes them. He clothes them. He meets them right where they need it. That's what God does. And what has God done in the person of Christ for us? He's met us right where we need it. We live in a fallen world. We live under condemnation. And what does he do? He comes to 
redeem that, to make the relationship whole, to restore the image of God and all of its blessings. And all of you are as a human being to say, the way to be human is to trust Christ, the perfect human, to be placed into him that now you can be fully human, fully alive, fearing God, following his commandments, and fearing not in enjoyment and joy and relationship with the Father. The last place I wanted to look today, in 1 John 4, just this great picture of how the fear of punishment is no longer the fear that we operate under as believers. How freeing is that? 1 John 4, 14 to 21. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And I was really blessed by um, an old commentary. This is a preacher in the 1800s, First John, Robert Candlish. Commentary. I think it's just some sermons on First John. He has this section in here that's just fascinating. Just wanted to point out some final things that I was just really encouraged by in some of his comment on these on these verses. He writes, "The perfecting of God's love with us, so that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, depends on our being as Christ is, and that too in this world." And the good news is, is that we can be as Christ is because of what God has done for us in Jesus. He's just speaking, um, Candlish is speaking as if Jesus' voice was saying this. I take your death as mine, he cries. The death which as sinners you deserve to die, I die that death in your stead. You cannot die that death yourselves and ever live again, but I can. And so the privilege of that we are in relationship with God just like Jesus is in relationship with God. We can have confidence. We can have confidence before God. We can be bold before God. So the kind of fear now is cloaked with a boldness that isn't afraid of punishment. He goes on to say this. God's love is with you as truly perfected with you as it is with him. So God's love is with you as it is with Jesus. You may have the same boldness that he might have in facing any day of judgment. To you as to him, death as the wages of sin is really past. There is no more any judicial reckoning with you on God's part, no more with you than with him but only dealings of love, of love made perfect, love having free course, love unfettered and unrestrained, so you have boldness as regards the day of judgment. 
Good news. Last thing. If we are to realize in our experience the relationship and fellowship of love as one in which there is no fear, it must be by faith. Therefore, I call on you to believe. Again, this is Candlish talking. To believe always, to believe more and more. Believe in God as first loving you. Yes, I say as first loving you. Be very sure that that must be first. Not your loving, but God's loving you. You cannot really know what love is until you believe in God as first loving you. You must first lay open your whole hearts to the free, frank acceptance of the love with which he first loveth you as the plant opens its bosom to the rain and sunshine of heaven. Then from that love with which God first loveth you, known, believed, accepted, embraced, there will spring up love in you, such love as will make your whole communication with God a communication altogether lovely and not fearful at all. Such love as will cordially welcome the assurance that God means you to be to him, not trembling, disaffected slaves, but loving, loyal, and confiding sons. So, the good news about the fear of God is that God loves you. That God calls you to fear not. That God calls you to walk into the kind of relationship of fear that is the kind of one with a father. And a father that deeply loves you and gave his son Jesus for you. So in this time when we can be afraid, let's make sure we're not fearing the wrong things. Let's make sure we're fearing God and we're walking in his call to us to fear not, to trust him, to walk in our everyday relationship with him with one of great joy. So he loves you, Rugged Christian Fellowship. He loves you much. Hope this encourages you. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you so much for Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you bring into us as a community the fear of you and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.